Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And today I have with me a scholar, a Paulson, political, Paulson policy analyst with the Manhattan Institute, Zach Goldberg. Uh, welcome, Zach. Thank you, Josiah. It's, it's great to be here. So, uh, Zach, you have a new report out uh, that looks at public opinion on uh, policing and de-policing to fund the police. Uh, and I would like to get into that. But uh, just briefly before we do that, um, I think you are probably, I'd like to talk a little bit about your background. I think you're probably best known uh, as uh, for your research on uh, what you call the Great Awakening. Uh, so maybe you could tell us a little bit about your background and then what is the Great Awakening and, and uh, you know how have you documented that in your in your research? Yeah, as you were alluding to, I'm this I'm the America's preeminent uh, wokeness study scholar. <laughs> I started my own subdiscipline. Uh, uh, well, but, but, I mean, I, I kind of say that uh, kind of half kiddingly because um, I mean, a lot of the research in the social sciences is always very focused on uh, prejudice, you know, prejudice towards historically disadvantaged groups, you know, blacks, minorities, or whatnot. Um, and there's such a fixation on that, uh, you know, why do people oppose, uh, you know, immigration? Why do people oppose affirmative action? Where I, I kind of turn things around, you know, I'm like, why do people support these things? So let's put the spotlight on those that actually support them. Maybe we can learn a little something, you know? So, um, Really, my interest in this topic um, really originated, I guess, uh, sometime around after the 2016 election when everybody was focused on trying to understand what drove Trump voters. Like, you know, what really is just everybody wants to do an autopsy, you know, on the Trump voting right. psychology. Uh, and I looked, this you is, know, I'm sorry. This is before we realized that it was hate. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh so um, I looked, you know, to and I, I looked at a lot of time series data and I was trying to compare. OK, because I, I was getting on that bandwagon as well. Uh, and I was trying to look, OK, how are Trump voters different from past uh, voters? And I saw, you know what, there really maybe are very marginal differences. You know, if in some cases they're actually, uh, you know, on some economic issues, they're actually more liberal than even Romney voters, you know. So I, I was really, um, you know, that kind of surprised me. But then I looked at the other part of the graph, <laughs> you know, or the other lines of the graph where the Democrats are. And I, and I see, wow, you know, what, what, what's going on here? Like there is really unprecedented increase in a lot of these, um, you know, attitudes, some of which have remained relatively stable for, for decades. And I don't know where we see support for increasing immigration jumping from, say, 20 percent of of Democrats all the way in 2016, all the way up to 35%, you know, and really a jump of that uh, magnitude is really unprecedented. So this really got me curious to see, you know, to what extent is this the case across a lot of other issues? And I started digging deeper and deeper. And I found that, you know what, the greatest shift is really not among Republicans or conservatives. I mean, Republican uh, ad and conservative attitudes on immigration and race have remained relatively stable. Uh, going back, to, you know, decades, it's really the greatest movement that we see is on the left. 
Uh, and nobody's really talking about this. And I, I think Matt Iglesias um, referred to this as the a great awakening uh, because really uh, the increases in, I guess, racially woke attitudes in terms of perceptions of discrimination, attributing group differences to discrimination, um, you know, uh, immigration policy, all of these things took really unprecedented leaps in the leftward direction. Um, and uh, few people were actually, uh, you know, looking at this at the time, apart from myself and, and maybe a few others. Um, and the policing thing is kind of a part of this uh, trend, uh, although it's, it's relatively late. But, you know, th this is definitely a part of the, the great awakening. Um, and um, so really my background was in I for my dissertation, you know, I've set about trying to understand, you know, what occasions support for this part, particularly, um, you know, among whites, you know, why do white people support policies that really, um, you know, could entail personal costs or sacrifices for them, like affirmative action? Why would they want to be subjected themselves to a system of racial preferences? Um, and I really started to uh, uh, home in on the, um, the literature on collective guilt and shame. Um, and I really thought that had vast explanatory power. I, and that's kind of, if I were to sum up my dissertation, my uh, doctoral dissertation in a sentence, it's that in the absence of white guilt and shame, white racial attitudes would be a lot more conservative than they are today. Everything that we're seeing now in the media environment culture would probably not exist or maybe exist in more moderate form. But, you know, wokeness, as we as we know it, as we see it in the media, uh, I don't think it would have, uh, you know, uh, it would be this in your face or we'd be bending or over backwards, remaking institutions, you know, and whatnot to cater to uh, the disadvantage in the absence of, of of some type of moral emotion, some type of moral um uh, I, I mean, I focus on the emotions of shame and guilt because uh, I think uh, particularly shame is a very important, uh, you, know, uh, you know, emotional construct for understanding where we are today. Um, and as you see in my report or as I'm going to be talking to your audience, I do uh, bring in, I incorporate some of those findings into my understanding of white Democrats positions on policing and depolicing in the wake of the Floyd incident. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so let's let's turn to that. So, uh, of course, as you say, in the wake of uh, the death of George Floyd and the protests uh, subsequent subsequent to that, there was a kind of movement that, in terms of popular perception, seemed to kind of come out of nowhere for a, a little while. Of you need to defund the police. Uh, and of course there was debates about, well, what exactly does that mean? Defund the police? Are you going to get rid of the police altogether? And I, I know that there were some people who said, no, 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 no. Defund the police just means you're going to give them less money. Uh, there were other people who said, no, it, it just means get, getting rid of the police altogether and, um, replacing them with, uh, with social workers, de-escalation specialists, things like that. Uh, that element is perhaps faded a little bit, I think, since the summer of 2020, uh, although I'm sure it's still out there. But so this was obviously a big thing at the time. It's maybe faded a little bit into the background, but uh, it is still out there. There were 
you know, I know that uh, here I'm in Austin, Texas. And, yes, that's right. The Austin uh, City Council, I think, slashed some of the uh, the budget for policing, as did uh, you know city councils in Portland and um, and Chicago, I believe. And now yes. they are kind of backpedaling um, in some uh, locales. Um, you know, I, I know uh, Portland is is one of them that is has increased, uh, or at least is kind of offsetting some of the the decreases that they did by increasing the number or trying to hire more police officers. Um, and you're right that it has faded to a certain extent. And that's kind of my motivation for writing this is I don't want that period to be memory hold. You know, right. I, I mean, you have in the aftermath of the 2016 election, you had a whole Trump studies, you know, genre of research, you know, and then you had the January 6th studies, you know, trying to understand. I see right. this as kind of, uh, you know, in that vein, you know, of trying to under, uh, understand what happened, how we even got to the point where such recklessly, such reckless policies were even being considered and let alone uh, implemented. Um, and uh, I think this is important because um, the, the summer of Floyd, I, I guess I would call it in short, stuff like that is going to happen again. Okay. It's just a matter of time. Maybe it's not in five years, maybe 10. It's going to happen again. It's happened throughout America. And I think it's important to understand uh, the psychology behind, you know, what really brings somebody to want to, um, uh, I guess, scale back policing at a time when, when violent crime is, is raging. Um, yeah. All right. Well, let's, let's, let's uh, dive into the report then. So you're, you're looking at, I guess, uh, survey data, uh, uh, polling data that breaks breaks things down by different um, yeah different categories. yeah yeah I, I begin with uh, just focusing on the fact that you know support for uh, you know state legislatures decreasing their spending on law enforcement and support for uh, shrinking the size of the police force and increasing I mean that's really what I guess. I guess the uh, the thread that kind of unites all of the defunders or those that support defunding, because as you said, you know, some people really mean abolition, some people mean just reallocation, but I think they're united on wanting to defund traditional policing, traditional policing, uh, uh, traditional police work. Okay, they'd rather rather than you know more cops patrolling the streets, they'd rather take some of that money. So I, and that and even the moderates and the extremes are kind of united on the view that okay, traditional policing is leading to these racial disparities. We need to um, you know cut back on traditional policing. So one of the measures I look at you know is kind of does just that. Let's get to cut down the number of police in the street. And keep in mind that in this the current context, <laughs> you know, violent crime is raging. You know, you know, businesses right. are being burned or whatnot. Um, and, um, what I, what I, what I begin with is just the observation that, you know, prior to 2020, you know, support for such policies was really, um, uh, was really low across all, uh, you know, racial ethnic groups, uh, you know, the very, very marginal differences. Uh, and then you see, uh, in 2020, you see that support for all of these policies increases across all groups, but it increases the most, uh, you know, among whites and Asians to the point that whereas before 2020, there were bar barely any group differences in support for these policies. In 2020, there are really yawning gaps uh, between particularly um, whites and Asian Democrats on one hand 
and black and Hispanic uh, Democrats on another. Um, so I begin with that observation that, you know, support among Democrats. And then obviously I advance the observation that, but support is, is increases have been uneven. Uh, and because of that, because support has increased only modestly among blacks and Hispanics relative to whites and Asians, whites and Asians now uh, are, um, you know, above and beyond, you know, the levels of support that they have for these policies is now like, you know, is double what it is uh, among blacks uh, and Hispanics. Um, and this really opens the question of why that is, you know, why are they most supportive uh, then uh, why are whites and, and Asian Democrats more supportive of these policies than blacks and Hispanics? Um, and uh, yeah, so uh, sorry. Uh, wh- could you just, uh, in terms of, you said that the, the gap is uh, that it doubled or the, what, what kind of numbers are we looking here? Are we looking at like 20%? Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So prior to 2016 support for, uh, you know, state legislatures decreasing spending on law enforcement Support among all groups tend to range from, let's say, 8 to 14 points, percentage points. Okay, so it was really low. It's like we're talking about like, you know, less than 1 in 10, maybe a little bit more than 1 in 10. Um, and support for um, increasing the police presence in the streets, uh, you know, that was actually uh, fairly high. That was actually in uh, – across all groups, it ranged from like 40 uh, – 40 low 40s to uh you know to a majority so in, into the 50s so what happened was that in 2020 um we said that the support among all groups was ranged from for defunding was 8 to, to 14 now it's at 40 percent among white democrats and like 35 percent among asian democrats versus around 17 uh, percent among blacks and, and hispanics um, and we can see that in other data as well. If you look at um, uh, the a- American National Election Studies, has been asking, you know, about whether, uh, you know, we should be the federal government should be spending more on dealing with crime. Uh, what you see that uh, is a uh, twenty point uh, twenty twenty five point drops among uh, white and Asian Democrats, um, you know, who think that uh, you know we should be spending more on dealing with crime. And I think uh, the drop among blacks and Hispanics was, was very marked. It was like five to eight, you know, versus 20 or so, uh, you know, among white Democrats uh, and Asian Democrats. So um, the, 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 in the data I spend most of the time on, you have about 40 percent of Democrats that want to defund. Uh, you have about just under 60 percent that want to decrease the street police presence and oppose increasing the street presence. That's how I operationalize. It's opposed to increasing and support for decreasing the street police presence. Um, And uh, in terms of those that would endorse both of those policies, it's roughly like 35% among white Democrats, 30% among Asian Democrats versus like 16% of black and Hispanic Democrats. Uh, Now this is significant because, you know, typically uh, one of the major, um, observations of the political science is that public opinion, it tends to move uh, parallel. I mean, different groups tend to move in parallel with one another. Uh, But as we see here, uh, there is parallel change, but it's just the magnitude of the change is so much greater among white Democrats and Asian Democrats. And this is something that I, um, you know, take up in the report is understanding like why that is, why are they more supportive than 
uh, you know, those other groups. Okay. So one, I think uh, if we were trying to come up with different hypotheses, hypothesize. Uh, so I, one thing that you talk about, say, common explanation perhaps is, well, if you're a white liberal uh, and you know, you're living in a gated community or a nice neighborhood or something, uh, you know, maybe, uh, it, whether there's, whether there's more police, less police or whatever, it's probably not going to affect you personally all that much. Uh, it's not your store that's going to get broken into robbed. You're probably not going to, um, you know, uh, get accidentally shot in a drive-by shooting or whatnot. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, you know, perhaps, uh, the reason why, uh, support is so elevated among this group. And you are, I, I, I believe you're only looking at Democrats. So it's not all, all, all. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the problem with looking, I mean, Republicans support for some of these policies is like three to 5%. So it really, right. um, I, I wouldn't get much variation if I looked at those groups because they're just resolutely opposed you know, to those right. policies. Right. So it's, it's specifically, yeah. So it's specifically white, uh, liberals, uh, and so, you know, it's just, it's, it, maybe they support these policies more because, uh, it's, it doesn't really have any effect on their, uh, 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 uh on their, on their daily life. So what, what do you have yeah, to say? Yeah. I, I mean, um, I guess what you're referring to in broad strokes or, or I guess what the luxury beliefs hypothesis is referring to is exactly what you're kind of saying. Luxury beliefs, uh, is a. I, guess I, I call it a theory, uh, but it's a concept coined by Rob Henderson, who also, I guess, kind of treats it as a theory, is that, you know, people oftentimes adopt beliefs as a way of signaling, uh, you know, their belonging in a higher social class. You know, whereas back in the day, back in the 1970s or even before then, the, the wealthy or the well-to-do used to, um, you know, flaunt their wealth by buying you know, pricey cars, you know, luxury goods or whatnot, that, you know, is kind of really, um, uh, I guess, taboo now to just be that ostentiously displaying your wealth. And now, I guess, a more acceptable form of, of signaling membership in a social class is by, um, you know, adopting very, I guess, you could maybe say superficially or on the surface, virtuous positions you know, that really signal that they are part of an enlightened group. And the point in the, um, well, the luxury uh, or what Rob Henderson, you know, argues is that, you know, the ability to endorse those, uh, to be able to endorse, you know, defunding the police as a kind of a status signal is facilitated by, you know, the relative immunity of the affluent from the costs of such policies. I mean, even before luxury belief, you have the concept of limousine liberalism. Well, what's limousine liberalism? Well, people that talk about, you know, very virtue, they preach these policies of virtue, but don't know, you know, they, they know they don't have to live under them. You know, everybody else has to suffer, you know? Right, right. Uh, and that's uh, really a lot of uh, running thread and a lot of, I guess, uh, maybe right wing critiques of the left is that, you know, um, that hypocrisy or, or, or just that double standard, you know, where it's. You know, they would never want to subject themselves to what they are imposing on on, on others. Um, mm -hmm. And the, uh, 
Yeah. So, you know, Martha's Vineyard, uh, sanctuary. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, that's kind of, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's not limousine liberal. It's not really like a theory. It's come more of just an own, but there is some, you know, I guess theoretical insight or, you know, that could be gained from there is that, you know, you know, maybe people, uh, you know, they, um, can derive status benefits by endorsing these beliefs without having to pay any costs. So through this framework, you know, why do whites and Asian Democrats, why are they more supportive? Well, because they can afford to endorse these policies and they, why do they endorse them? Because they want to signal that they are an enlightened group. They're part of the enlightened class. They're on the right side of history. Um, And they can do that, you know, without losing any sleep at night because, you know, they live really in, uh, you know, really sheltered communities, you know, they're not dealing with crime, you know, um, you know, which they're not dealing with the reality on the street, so to speak. So that's one of that's, you know, it's, it's a very intuitively appealing, um, you know, account. Uh, and I actually went into this, you know, expecting that, you know, I was going to find complete support for this account. And to be sure, you know, I, I do find some support for it. And we're going to go into that in a second. Um, but I do think it, it, it does overlook some things, but that is one of the accounts that I was, or maybe the main account I was testing in this is, uh, you know, to what extent is that true? To what extent, if you were to hold all other socio socioeconomic variables constant, uh, you know, would support, uh, you know, what differences in support, uh, you know, uh, diminish, would they, you know, uh, reduce to insignificance? Um, so that's one hypothesis. Um, and another, uh, hypothesis, which I test or the competing hypothesis is that rather than this being driven by socioeconomic status, socioeconomic status is kind of epiphenomenal to the ideology, the ideological framework that is actually motivating, uh, support for this belief. Uh, now this ideological framework may be more common among the well-to-do, but it's it's kind of more incidental to it. It's I I posit that you know those that are you know that reach higher social status they also have the predispositions that incline them towards these types of ideological frameworks. So it's not that ideological frameworks necessarily causing you know the adoption or enabling the adoption. It's that both are the products of these deeper predispositions. One that inclines them towards higher social status. Another that inclines them towards uh, you know, um, this ideological framework. And the ideological framework is really just that, you know, um, well, in the case of, of, of white Democrats, you know, um, and you have to understand, you know, the average white Democrat probably believes that there are, and based on the only available study, which we have, the only available data, you know, the average Democrat thinks that at least one to 10 to 10,000 Black, uh, unarmed blacks are being killed by the police, you know, every year, you know? So they see right. this, you know, the real, the real number, the real number is, yeah, it's, it's all it varies by the year, but, uh, in 2021, for instance, and I say unarmed, obviously someone could still be a threat to law enforcement, even if they're unarmed. So unarmed could be very misleading, but using the mapping police violence uh, database, there were, I think, uh, in, Excuse me. In 2021, there were like I think 30 unarmed blacks that were killed by police, versus like 50 or so whites. So it's way off from what the public actually perceives it to be. And I'm actually involved with research that goes even deeper, 
uh, that looks at you know the perception of that uh, of non-lethal uh, police force. You know, you know, we, we're going to be using uh, data from the Bureau of Justice Statistics as a benchmark, uh, b- benchmark to see you know whether people are accurate in terms of their um, you know their perceptions about the experience of uh, of non-lethal use of force. And I expect to find the same thing where, you know, it's vastly overestimated and, you know, and as you become more, li- go more liberal, the more you're bad at estimating these things. So I, I guess my point is, is, is that, you know, part of the input in this logical framework, or the, some of the, one of the triggers here is that view that, you know, these people of color, particularly blacks are being preyed upon by the police. Okay. Now, if you're a white person, you know, or, or a white Democrat, and, and you believe that disparities uh, between groups are the result of white supremacy, and you know that you enjoy unearned privileges, and that you know you the police goes easy on you, they don't go easy on them. They prey on you know uh, your your neighbors or you know your your your, your black brothers and sisters. Uh, well, uh, you know the. the it's 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 a much more difficult decision to say okay let's increase the size of police force i mean there's a moral consideration of well am i making this problem of racism worse and i say racism loosely I, because you know this is how disparities are interpreted among a i guess a dominant segment of you know of the democratic establishment uh, especially among the activists so the point is is that you know, people that are under the group of ideology are less sensitive to considerations of consequences, considerations of risk. Um, and to the extent that that's true, it may not be the case that when you control for socioeconomic status, uh, you know, all the differences between groups and support for these policies is going to evaporate. Um, it could be that white Democrats, you know, as white people, uh, you know, come to the issue with unique group-based moral considerations, where it's no longer as simple as saying, okay, crime is, there's people riding in the street, crime is, you know, it, it's just, there's chaos going on, we need to increase the uh, police. You know, there's that other consideration now where it's, well, I'm going to be endangering the lives of people of color, you know, and I'm a privileged white person, and do I really want to live with that on my conscience? Um, and uh, so that's really the a second, um, you know, hypothesis is that you're not going to eliminate support by controlling for a socioeconomic status. Uh, but what is going to be more predictive is ideology. Ideology is going to be uh, a stronger driver of support, um, you know, among white Democrats than socioeconomic uh, variables. Uh, so those are essentially the two hypotheses, a socioeconomic centered account and an ideology or group-based ideology uh, account. Um, and um, I kind of put the, both of them to the test in, in this report. Um, excuse me, let me take a sip of water here. And what I find is that when you control for um, you know, indicators of socioeconomic status and demographic variables, um, you, you hold those constant, meaning you match every respondent on the, you, you, you assign every black respondent a college education, you assign every white and so on and so forth for each group. You give them the same scores in all these um, socioeconomic indicators and their, def- their demographic variables, uh, such as, you know, where they live, what census division, you know, their sex, you know, 
how many children are in the house. Everything is just matched. Everybody has the same socioeconomic profile. Uh, and when you do that, you find that while gaps, uh, significant gaps in support between Asian and uh, Black and Hispanic Democrats are, um, you know, they uh, really diminish to insignificance, like they, they pretty much are no longer there. Um, the gaps between white Democrats and Black uh, and Hispanic uh, Democrats are, are still pretty substantial. They're moderated by like 30% or so, but there's still about a 10 to 12 point difference in support, even when you account for all of those, um, you know, uh, socioeconomic and demographic variables. Um, and this initially, you know, I was, I was, it was really uh, scratching my head um, at, uh, and another model I looked at and I, I just controlled for ideology or, you know, and degree of really the, the major variable here is, ideological self-identification. And what I notice is that when you control for ideological self-identification, that explains just as much of the difference uh, in support between whites uh, and non-whites as all of the socioeconomic and demographic variables combined. So it would appear that pound for pound ideology is much more important. But I didn't stop there. I, I mean, I guess maybe some people conclude the, the report there. But I was curious, you know, why is socioeconomic uh, status or indicators, um, why why are they less influential for the white versus non-white ga gap than the Asian versus black and Hispanic uh, gap? So this got me into considering um, the possibility that, you know, maybe just maybe even poor whites, even poor white Democrats are still significantly less likely to live in, um, you know, uh, you know, high crime areas, uh, you know, than their, you know, comparable uh, or their similarly situated black and Hispanic and Asian uh, counterparts. And um, when I merge the data on zip code and county uh, violent crime, that, that does appear to be the case that, you know, even a, a white Democrat in the bottom income category is still living in a zip code or county with lower levels of violent crime relative to uh, a black or a non-white Democrat in that same income category, okay? So, you know, it, it seemed pretty straightforward that because of that, because, you know, socioeconomic status or low socioeconomic status among white Democrats exposes white Democrats still to less violent crime than, you know, a low SES non-white Democrat, you know, that could be the reason why, you know, socioeconomics are not as uh, uh, important of a factor for explaining the gap between white and non-white Democrats when it comes to support for deep policing policies. Um, so I, my, as my next test, okay, that, that's a that's hypothesis right there, you know. Perhaps once we factor in the differences in exposure to crime, you know, things, you know, we'll, we'll get a different picture. So what I did was, is, you know, I hold socioeconomic status constant like I did before, but now I'm going to vary, uh, uh, you know, local violent crime levels. So I'm going to look at, I'm going to hold everything else constant. And I'm going to look at each group's level of support in low crime areas and high crime areas. And very counterintuitively, what I find is that, um, well, while support, as one would imagine, 
dips substantially among non-white Democrats as you move from a low crime to a high crime area. You know, there's really precipitous declines. Uh, white Democrats, um, if anything, there's actually some increases in support, or at least they, they show at the very minimum, the best we could say is that their attitudes are really insensitive or indifferent or non-responsive to, uh, you know, even the highest crime, uh, you know, zip codes or, or, or counties. Um, so that may be, the, I guess, the most sh shocking finding of, of the report is that, you know, the policing attitudes of white Democrats are really kind of indifferent to uh, the criminal or the, uh, context, the, the criminal context, whereas that is not the case among um, these uh, other groups. Yeah, so uh, I think Irving Kristol famously said that a conservative or it might've been a neoconservative uh, was a liberal who had been mugged by reality. <laughs> it sounds like what you're saying is uh, even getting mugged doesn't work uh, anymore. If you're, yeah. if you're a white, or a white Democrat. Yeah. Here's the thing. And, and, and I totally buy that. And I, I still, I would acknowledge that. Yes. In, even in high crime, uh, you know, locales, uh, you know, blacks and Hispanics or particularly blacks are still a greater victimization relative to whites. I acknowledge that, but it's still kind of crazy that moving from, you know, obviously white, a white person is still at a lower risk of victimization in a low crime area than in a high crime area. Okay. You know, okay. if you live in a, in a, in a dangerous neighborhood, even if it's violent crime is rare, you're still at greater risk relative to your risk in an area with, you know, very, very little violent crime. So the fact Could that the attitudes are not really, um, responsive at all to the surrounding context, uh, I, I found was, uh, was really interesting. And this kind of was the, uh, you know, the stepping stone to my next, uh, you know, series of analysis in that report. I'm sorry, you're yeah. going to say something. I'll, I'll let you. Go. Oh, I was just, uh, uh, I was just wondering if, could there be some sort of, uh, uh, selection effect going on where if you're, a, let's say you're a white liberal and you're, you are in a, high crime area or crime goes up in your area. Um, and you know, uh, if you don't think that's, if you don't think that's great, maybe you're more likely to just move away. And so the people who, who stick it out are more ideological or this is, so this is, I think, well, yeah. um, yeah. Yeah. I, I see exactly what you're saying. And, uh, what I can say is that, um, listen, there could be, ideological differences that are not being captured in the measures that I, that are available to me or at my disposal in, in the data. It could yeah. be there, there is some selection. And, and, and part of the reason why, to your point, part of the reason why, if you don't control for anything, you just analyze support by violent crime. Um, what you find is really significant positive relationships. Now, part of that is because, well, the really white liberal progressives, the activist types are more likely to live in these, you know, in these, uh, you know, uh, these urban environments. Um, right, right. But when you have control for everything, you control, you know, for ideological self-identification, you control for age, you control for everything else, and even control, uh, you know, for, for racial, um, you know, attitudes, you still do find that um, at the very least, you know, support is no different in high crime uh, to low crime neighborhoods. So 
we have to keep in mind there are limitations. There are things that I cannot that the data do not allow me to test. And it's possible right. that if you were to include more better, more uh, comprehensive battery of ideological measures, maybe you would find. Uh, but I'll, what I could say is that when I hold constant, the variables that I do have uh, support, um, you know, among white Democrats is really. If anything, it's higher than in, in high crime than than, than low crime uh, locales. Now, are there qualitative yeah. differences between those white Democrats? Probably, I but I, I just don't have the means of controlling for that. Um, yeah, and it's, it's even it, uh, sorry. It's just even even ideology itself, or you know, party affiliation itself. If you're if you are a a, a white Democrat or white liberal, you of course cannot become a, a black Democrat or a black liberal. Uh, most of the time, yeah. But um, <laughs> but you could, you know, if you wanted to, you could say, hey, you know what? I think I'm going to be a Republican now, uh, or you know, I don't think I identify as liberal anymore. Right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. I think, but uh, but, but I I do think um, it it you know even I you know th- that I don't think is going to be uh, so, so that so that's a wrinkle, but. It does, you know, leave open the fact that you did have until very recently there wasn't a big gap. It sounds like yes. between white Democrats and black Democrats, and then all of a sudden it really went up. So that's something that calls for an explanation. Yeah, uh, yeah, and and this is really part of the. Uh, I mean, I show in my dissertation that um, I mean, as of a few years ago, you know, white Democrats now outwoke on a measure of racial liberalism that I've created that goes all the way back to the 1950s. You know. In the past few years, white Democrats have surpassed non-white Democrats in terms of racial liberalism, um, and uh, it, it's really remarkable to look at. Um, and um, what I will say, though, is that you know you're kind of still making my point, though. Even if you say the selection effect and that more ideological, it's still the case that ideology is allowing is kind right, of what right, is right. enabling them to withstand, you know, circumstances or put up with an environment that other people. Uh, you know that other groups are are, are not willing to put up with. I guess. <laughs> yeah. You know. So I, I guess my point here is it's not so much that it's socioeconomics; it's the fact that they are they're committed to a vision of the future. You know, a more equitable, just vision, and it's possible that that ideological commitment makes them more resilient or more willing to put up with. You know. Uh, the bedlam that otherwise you know that that scare other people away. Uh, yeah, so, yeah. I mean, in a, it, uh, you know, in a sense, you could say it's um, it's kind of admirable. You know, they got skin in the game, or they're not. You know, they're they're they're, they're not just. Uh, it's not just a signal. It's something they're really committed to. You know, uh, even at the you know at the risk of them. Uh, you know, uh, yeah. being victimized. Whatever, you know. And what I, what I say is, it ultimately it's still we're, we're, even if they're sincere, even if they you know were to sign a contract saying I'm willing to subject myself to higher victim, it's still the case that you know people there's consequences to these policies, and you know it's still the Correct. case that the socioeconomically disadvantaged are uh, the ones that are uh, you know are bearing a disproportionate share of the costs. Well, the only right. thing I would say on top of that, and the only revision I suggest is it's not – it's, I guess, equally accurate to say that the consequences are being borne by the ideologically uncommitted. 
Uh, whereas I guess the Rob, Rob Henderson types would say it's being disproportionately borne by the socioeconomically disadvantaged. I would say that it's disproportionately borne by those that don't really share that vision or don't really are not operating in with that ideological software, <laughs> you know, Yeah, that makes yeah. them less well, sensitive know, to these things. Yeah. The road to hell is paved with, um, yeah, it's not paved with liberal hypocrisy. Right. Um, uh, yeah. okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, so what, um, so this is very interesting. I guess the question, you know, is, um, uh, and this is, you know, probably calls for speculation beyond the data. I don't know. Uh, it sounds like you've done some other research in it, but what, I mean, what is it, uh, that it, that is like the source of this, uh, ideology in particular, yeah. the, the recent, you right. know, heightening or, or change of it. Yeah. Well, I guess that, that brings us to maybe the, the final part of uh, the report. Um, and just very briefly, let me say that I looked at to see whether maybe even in high crime areas, white Democrats are still living in, in segregated um, residential communities. And so I, I, I varied. Uh, I looked at violent crime while varying, you know, by the degree of residential segregation. I didn't really find much support for that thesis. And this which leads me to trying to test an alternative account, which follows from my dissertation work of why white Democrats would be more supportive um, or maintain their support at the very least in as the local, uh, you know, as the environment worsens. Um, and um, I mean, and this kind of intersects with the question that I was, uh, I mentioned that was kind of the a guiding question of my dissertation is, you know, why do whites support policies that um, can entail, uh, you know, at the very least, they entail group-level costs, but they also can entail uh, personal costs, um, such as affirmative action. You know, why do they uh, support affirmative action? And in my research, you know, I, I, I find that, you know, some of the best, the strongest predictors of support for, you know, racial preferences, reparations, is uh, white guilt and shame. I would say white shame is the probably the strongest uh, predictor. And I know maybe your listeners doesn't really familiar with the distinction between, uh, you know, guilt and shame. I'm not going to give a, uh, you know, a whole lecture on that here, uh, except I'll, I will say that there are, uh, they, there are, they are qualitatively different, although there's a lot of overlap between them. Um, and what I find is that from, you know, I have done experimental work is that when you um, really expose uh, whites to uh, charges that their group is responsible for the suffering of others. Um, and and I, I, my dissertation is kind of very specific because I would say that liberals kind of are not able to resist that type of accusation in a way that conservatives can. Conservatives could say, well, no, these groups are just lazy or these groups, you know, it is. They're less likely to system blame. System blamers, system blamers, I guess, have a very tough time of trying to repel or or, or parry that type of accusation that your group, you're enjoying illegitimate advantages right now on account of what your group, your racial group did to my people, you know, for the past 100 years. Um, And, um, you know, this really, in, in terms of when it comes to guilt, that, well, this makes, uh, uh, you know, for those that are, 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 are feel white guilt for, you know, their illegitimate privileges or advantages, you know, they feel kind of morally inadequate. 
you know, and they need to do something to kind of stem, you know, to kind of resolve that those really, uh, really uncomfortable feelings of moral inadequacy. Um, and, you know, you can do that by, well, supporting affirmative action, supporting racial preferences. Uh, yes, you might pay a cost, but at least you'll feel better about yourself. Now, the problem with guilt, obviously, is this kind of very self-focused, you know, where it's like, I'm doing this because I just want to feel better about myself. So that's one of the, one of the critiques of guilt. But shame is much more, um, it's kind of more about, uh, rather than focusing on my own personal uh, moral deficiencies, I'm focusing on my, the, the deficiencies, the global deficiencies of my, the, the, or the, the group that people associate with. You know, I may not feel that I'm morally inadequate, but I'm nonetheless associated with a group that is, that is morally defective, that is really essentially racist. Okay, so um, this shame tends to encourage efforts at trying to um, dif- uh, distance oneself from one's group, you know, by affirming or, uh, you know, um, uh, Proclaiming, I guess, once, you know, uh, uh, status as a good white person, you know, a good anti-racist and also confronting the group and trying to change the group so that it's no longer morally defective. Uh, so I, I guess just to sum it up, shame focuses on negative essentializations and negative moral essentializations of the group, whereas guilt uh, theoretically uh, is said to uh, stem from uh, perceptions of one's own personal uh, inadequacy. So the point is, is that these emotions, for, for different reasons, they lead to, uh, you know, support for, um, you know, I guess what we would call really crazy or reckless policies, but policies that from their stand of view is a way of reducing suffering among those that have been victimized by their group. Now, I'm saying this because I'm, 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 not, I'm not endorsing any of these. I'm just saying that this is psychologically, uh, you know, or theoretically how, uh, you know, guilt and shame is operating. Um, so th- the point is, is that when you have periods where you have inflections in media coverage about group differences and, you know, the role of discrimination and, you know, comparing status differences between whites and non-whites, that increases uh, the salience of these group categories and also the differences uh, and advantages between them. And that this kind of uh, elevates uh, feelings of shame and guilt. So what I do show in my dissertation is that as, you know, media coverage of status differences between whites and blacks increases, and in the same context, those status differences are attributed to discrimination, you see increases in, um, in racial liberalism among uh, white Democrats and liberals. And in an experiment I run in my dissertation, I actually give respondents, I randomly assign them to read like a woke op-ed article from uh, Los Angeles Times uh, you know, which kind of made the similar uh, point about white people being responsible and, and, and what have you. And this did, you know, a short five minute article suffice to increase support for, you know, affirmative action, racial preferences, race based governance uh, by like 10 points. So and those effects were mediated by self-reported feelings of, uh, of, of shame uh, and guilt. So I guess my point here is that. If you want to get white people to, I guess, not think about their own self-interest, if you want to take their minds off of that and to think about, you know, inducing into in, in into support policies that potentially compromise their self-interest or 
you know, or, or just ignore considerations of cost or consequences altogether. You know, shame and guilt is a uh, inducing shame and guilt is a an, an effective means of doing that. And my argument is that in the aftermath of the Floyd death, when you know I didn't show this showcase this um, you know in this report, but you know negativity towards white people and white men actually increased among white Democrats. <laughs> and yeah, you know, well, isn't, uh, I think uh, this may have been you as someone recently was saying that. Um, uh, white Democrats now have like, um, uh, I mean, they basically have all sorts of negative views about white people. They think they're lazy, stupid. Yes, yes, uh, yes. I just, no. I just posted that. Uh, yes, the, uh, I posted some time series about, you know, group stereotype, uh, ratings or endorsements where you pretty much are given scales, you know, uh, that ask you think of the, in general, or think of the average, you know, white person, what extent do you think, uh, you know, this group is, you know, peaceful, violent, lazy, uh, hardworking, intelligent. What you could see is, is that the extent that, you know, white Democrats attribute these negative stereotypes to white people versus black people has is definitely increased, meaning they are more likely to apply those stereotypes to whites than they are to blacks now. And what's telling is that, you know, if you're really scared of, of coming across to the surveyor as like a racist – you could just rate all groups equally in all traits. <laughs> but no, now the average Democrat, the excuse me, the average white Democrat, and, and, and this also holds for, for other Democrats as well, now rates um, uh, white, uh, white people as more violent, less intelligent than, uh, than blacks, which is interesting. Um, and we also see, uh, you know, as I just said, in the after one of my dissertation chapters, I, I, I document causal um, uh, effects of the Floyd incident on, uh, you know, favorability or, or uh, you know, the extent that, uh, you know, whites are favorable towards other whites. So you see an increase in unfavorability towards whites among uh, white Democrats. And as I argue in my dissertation, one the best predictor of, you know, giving, you know, being cool towards whites or negative towards whites among whites, if you're a white person, is moral shame. <laughs> So my point is in saying that is at the time or after the Floyd incident or in the months uh, in which these respondents were taking the survey, these emotions were still very salient. Uh, you know, these emotions about, you know, our responsibility to protect people of color, whatnot, all, all of this is still on the minds of, of, of white Democrats, you know, as they're completing these surveys. And I, and I think that, uh, you know, it, it kind of distracts them from other considerations. Considerations of what would be the implicate, what would be the consequences if we actually did this? You know, it's more about how do I, um, you know, how do I do my part, my responsibility as a privileged white person to protect people of color from a racist institution that preys on them every single day, you know, by the thousands or by the thousands, you know, kills them unarmed by the thousands every year, you know? So, uh, that's what I view as, you know, and I'm not saying it's the whole story here, but uh, b given the importance of guilt and shame for white support for other types of uh, race related policies, um, I make the case and argue that this is also a factor here. Uh, on the other hand, non-white Democrats, you know, they don't don't have the uh, the cachet of, of being privileged. 
you know, they don't have historical sins that they need to atone for, or at least historical sins that are publicized, you know, in our education system and the media. Um, so they don't face the same moral cross pressure. They don't face the same distractions that kind of, you know, cloud their uh, thinking on this. You know, when it, if, if crime is, in a, you know, is, is increasing, you know, and you're faced with the option of reducing crime, it, it, it doesn't, they don't think about, okay, but I might feel guilty or, but I might be putting, you know, people of color at risk. There's much less of that. It's much more practical type of uh, preference formation uh, where they're just choosing the policy that would seem to uh, be most apt under the current circumstances. Whereas white Democrats are much uh, more morally, uh, I guess, distracted uh, in ways that non-white Democrats are not. Um, and, um, and, and I, I think that is essentially uh, part of what's going on here. And as a test on this of this account, what I do show is that, fortunately, the data I work with doesn't have measures of guilt and shame. But what it does have is measures that I found to be very strongly correlated with uh, guilt and shame among whites. Um, and what you see is there, what I show is that, I mean... One of the hypotheses I test is that because the risks are greater in high crime environments, morally, moral conviction is more important in those attitudes for supporting um, – genuine moral conviction is more important for sustaining support for deep policing policies in high crime environments as violent crime increases. Okay, So I essentially treat these racial liberalism index that I created, which, as I said, is strongly overlapping with guilt and shame. I treat it as kind of a proxy of, of moral conviction, um, or more specifically, guilt and shame among whites. And what I find is that, you know, the effects of that index on support for defunding and depolicing actually grows, as, as predicted, it grows among white Democrats as violent crime increase. And the effects of that racial wokeness index get stronger, whereas the effects among non-white Democrats moves in the other direction. It becomes weaker. So meaning a maximally racially, so someone that scores the highest possible score on the scale, you know, a white Democrat is going to be much more supportive of depolicing than a maximally woke non-white Democrat. And this holds for each and every one of the four other, um, you know, I look at it as not among non-white Democrats as a whole, but I also look at it among the individual groups. And the the, the patterns are, are pretty stark. You, you really do see these really dramatic declines, uh, you know, among the maximally woke, you know, going from a low crime environment to a high crime environment. It seems that everybody, and this is kind of one of the ironies that I point out, it, it's almost as if, you know, Luxury, all you know, defunding, uh, you know, de support for defunding and depolicing, it kind of serves more as a luxury belief or a virtue signal, you know, a kind of superficial virtue signal for non-white Democrats than it is uh, for white Democrats. Um, and uh, you know, I think that's that's really interesting. Obviously, this isn't the final word on this topic. This is, I, I hope, it's going to be an opening act that inspires more research. And tests of these type of hypotheses, uh, if not in this context, then in other contexts as well. But um, I do find that very revealing. That you know, you know, the added the index that is strongly correlates with guilt and shame among whites is 
becomes more very, you know, it becomes it's most important in high crime areas, where it is least important among non-white Democrats in high crime areas. So, um, you know, as I said, Asian Democrats are full of shit. <laughs> I'm sorry, Asian Democrats in, in, in low crime areas are full of shit because, you know, if you were to put them in a high crime context, they would, you know, their, their support would really just, you know, fall away. Whereas white Democrats, they seem to be more genuine. And I attribute that partially to the influence of those unique group-based emotions and considerations, which other groups like Asian Democrats do not, um, you know, they're not burdened by. Okay. Well, I guess, I guess we'll end on that note. If people want to learn more uh, about your research, about this report, where can they, where can they find you? Um, well, I have, I could give you my Twitter handle. It is at uh, Zach G Z A C H G nine thirty two. Um, they could also, uh, well, I'm should be listed on the Manhattan Institute website if anybody wants to email me. Um, and I'll be, uh, you know, churning out more research, um, you know, in the months ahead. Uh, so they should definitely, uh, you know, follow me and, uh, you know, and stay stay tuned. <laughs> All right. Uh, I guess today has been Zach Goldberg. Uh, Zach, thank you very much for joining the Urban Cowboys. Thank you very much. It was it was really uh, a pleasure to be here.